One of the things I love about the Dhamma, about the Buddha's teachings, is wherever you contact these teachings, whatever draws you in, whatever you get interested in, if you follow that deeply enough, it will connect to all the other teachings and all of the Dhamma will be revealed. So you could be drawn in by your suffering and wanting to understand that, be free of suffering. You'd be drawn in by faith or the wisdom element, a curiosity, a sense of investigation into these deep truths like the three characteristics, or even just an interest and a love of mindfulness, of of knowing clearly what's happening. Any of these and many more can be doorways into these teachings. And all will, again, if you follow them long enough, deeply enough, will lead to seeing things clearly. Seeing the Dhamma, which literally means the way things are, the truth of things. And the more we understand and align with that, align with the truth, the more freedom and happiness we will feel. It's just a direct correlation. One of the Buddha's teachings that directly points to this possibility of freedom through this kind of practice and understanding is the teaching on the second foundation of mindfulness, teaching on what's called in Pali Vedana. The English translation is usually feeling tone. So this is what I'll be talking about tonight. It's the second in the series I'm doing on the four foundations of mindfulness, the second foundation, which is Vedana. So usually translated as feeling tone, sometimes, actually quite often you'll see it translated as feeling, but it doesn't mean emotions. It's not about our emotional life. It's about this immediate response to contact, to something arising in our experience. And traditionally, there are said to be three main types of feeling, feeling or feeling tones that are pleasant, feelings tone that's unpleasant, and feeling tone that's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, sometimes translated as neutral. The Pali is actually a dukkha masukha, not dukkha, not sukha, not happiness, not suffering, not happiness, neutral feeling tone. So not emotions, but this very um, kind of raw data about what's arising in our experiences, what this teaching is pointing us to. And it's so important that it's a whole foundation of mindfulness on the same level as the body, where we, you know, give so much emphasis. Also, next section is on the mind, obviously important. But a whole section on this pointing to noticing, bringing mindfulness to Vedana. There's a whole section in this giant book on the connect the connected discourses, the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a, a Vedana Samyutta, a whole section just on teachings on Vedana. And it's central to the teachings on the aggregates that Guy spoke about the other week, to the teaching of dependent origination, and to this um, very important sutta called the dart, sometimes the two darts, uh, which and I'll be talking on all three of those tonight. And it, but there's many other places where this teaching on Vedana is referenced because it's so important. But the text in the Satipatthana Sutta, Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, is very short. I think it's almost the shortest. Well, that and the mind, they're both equally short, but very uh, pointed. This is what it says in one translation. And how does the practitioner? 
in regard to feelings, abide contemplating feelings. Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling, she knows. I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, she knows. I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neutral feeling, she knows. I feel a neutral feeling. But then it goes on to actually elaborate a little. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, she knows I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, she knows I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. It goes on to repeat that formulation for the other two types of feeling, that there can be worldly and unworldly pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feeling types. Most of the time when we talk about this as a mindfulness practice, when we give an instruction on it, we're talking about the first kind, the worldly kind of um, feeling, which is just basically feeling arises, arising out of contact with the six sense doors. A lot with the five sense doors, kind of our sensual experience, but certainly need to include the mind in that practice. Unworldly feelings are feelings associated with the spiritual life, with um, wholesome qualities like renunciation, uh, degrees of concentration in the mind, absorption, um, all of the sort of spiritual wholesome qualities that we can develop. So a pleasant unworldly feeling would be the feeling of concentration, of the mind being absorbed and free from the hindrances, or of renunciation, of not being engaged in a lot of craving and clinging, um, all of the other wholesome qualities that we might develop unpleasant, unworldly feelings. Uh, It's said in the text, it sings like dissatisfaction with our spiritual imperfections. And when I read this, I really, uh, my sense is not that we judge that, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm not good enough, etc. But really to cultivate a sense of sambhaga, that Pali word, I think someone used it already, kind of spiritual urgency, a sense of what we need to cultivate to be freer and happier in our spiritual practice and in our lives. So it's kind of that sense of unworldly, unpleasant feelings. But I think helpful just to mainly keep it simple, but I will refer to those as we we go on in our exploration this evening. And then as there is in the other foundations, there's this uh, section of the sutta called the refrain or the insight section where we abide contemplating feeling or feeling tone internally, externally in both. So it means our own feeling tones, but also recognizing that other people are also recognizing feeling tones in the same way and their nature of arising and vanishing and both. Meaning again, like the experience of the body, these feeling tones are impermanent, conditioned, have a certain um, length of time they arise, could be fleeting or longer, and then they vanish, they disappear. So they also have that same prop, those same properties as we were practicing with the body. And then this last piece that I referred to when we were talking about mindfulness of the body that's so helpful, or mindfulness that there is feeling, or there is Vedana, is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And the practitioner abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. 
That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating feelings as feelings. So again, this sense of not adding to them as much as possible, seeing them in their bare nature, their essential nature, just sufficient for bare knowledge and mindfulness, always that as the kind of bottom line. But, as I said, the Buddha considered this such an important place for exploration that it's here as a whole foundation in and of itself. So we include it in the instructions. We talk about it often to notice the Vedana of experience because it's a doorway to more understanding and potentially to freedom. So we can literally practice with this as an aspect of our mindfulness, as an aspect of our noticing what's happening. And you can choose for times, if you get interested, to actually do this intensively, as well as noticing all of the other arisings and and a recognition of, of them, to notice also whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's actually interesting to take a period of time, whether it's a few minutes or a whole sitting or walking or even a longer period, and really make a point of including this. It can be very revealing. Um, And I'm not saying you have to do this, but just if you get interested, it is a possibility. In this program um, that I've often taught, the Dedicated Practitioner Program, now Andrea is leading that program, we do a lot of experiential exercises where we really explore these teachings and bring them alive in our practice. And one of the things we do often, we call uh, mindfulness out loud or vipassana out loud. And in that, you sit with a partner and you actually um, describe your experience to someone else, which is a very personal thing to do. Now I'm aware of a breath. Now I'm aware of seeing. Now I'm aware of my hand gesturing. And it kind of breaks down the uh, false idea we have that our experiences are completely unique. We see that everyone's kind of doing the same thing. And sometimes we extend that by adding what the feeling tone is and can spend, you know, we get people to spend 10 minutes or more just describing moment by moment their experience and adding what the Vedna is. So it really starts to reveal this, the changing nature of these experiences and how the Vedna is very integral to what we're experiencing. So the point of the talk tonight will be to explore this quality, um, this aspect of experience, and also how to practice with it in different ways. So the first I'll talk about is Vedna as one of the aggregates. So Guy's already spoken about this in his talk on the aggregates. Um, So remember, form, feeling, perception, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. So it's the second aggregate, important enough, again, to be highlighted. So the five aggregates, the khandhas, are these aspects of experience that we cling to and create an identity around, a sense of self out of. That was what the Buddha was pointing to when he gave these teachings, is notice how that's what's happening. That's what's happening. That's what you do. That's how you create a sense of self, is usually through one of these five doorways or five aspects of experience, the aggregates, and how that then leads to suffering. So it can be obvious when we think of the aggregates that we can identify with the body. It's a very common place. I talked about that, how, you know, we 
I am the body, this is me, you know, we look in the mirror, yep, that's who I am. And also the mind, that our thoughts and all of our, the contents of our mind, there's a, a, an obvious way we identify with that. But to see that we also create clinging and identification around these more subtle aspects of perception and feeling tone, really helpful to look at, much more subtle, but pervasive. They shape us. And unless we bring awareness to those processes, our habitual patterns will continue to run the show. So it's why they're pointed out for us to pay attention to. So what happens with Vedana, and I think we've pointed to this before, usually what's pleasant, we want more of, right? What's unpleasant, we push away. And what's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we space out, we disconnect, or we start looking for something that gives us the hit of experience. Even if, if it's not something that's pleasant, we want contact. The, the mind looks for this kind of uh, heightened contact. So we push away what's unpleasant. We try to hold on and get more of what's pleasant. Andy Olensky has, who is a scholar who often uh, teaches at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies next door, he has an interesting take on this process of um, craving and clinging. He says that mindfulness, our practice reveals that grasping is not something done by the self, but rather the self is something done by grasping. The self is constructed each moment for the simple purpose of providing the one who likes or who doesn't like, holds onto or pushes away what is unfolding in experience. So rather than thinking, you know, I'm in here somewhere and I'm trying to get what I want, that very momentum of grasping creates a sense of self to actuate the getting of the object. It's really interesting to play with this perception, this insight that Andy had, to see if it's true. You know, because the Buddha's teaching is the self is just a right, it's just process. There's nothing solid there. We're actually creating it in response to this movement of mind of liking or disliking. So I encourage you to look into that if that piques your interest. And just to see, again, how we do that how we create a sense of self through our likes and our dislikes. So all of the kind of groupings that you might have gotten involved in or you see other people get involved in, political parties, cliques, um, people affiliating through things that they like to do, whether it's bird watching or Star Wars or Harry Potter novels, you know, you just see those images of the, these conventions, right, where these grown people are dressing up as all these characters and like that's what's pleasant for them, to have this self-created of the people, the individual who likes that movie, that book, that, that comic book, that particular set of interests. See the strong sense of identification that comes out of liking that, finding that pleasant. So we gravitate 
to those that share our views, our interests, what we find pleasant, and that solidifies the sense of that being right or good or just or cool or whatever it is. And so this cycle gets perpetuated when it's not seen. And we can reject those that don't share those views. You know, they're not cool, they're not the in crowd, they don't know what's, what, what's fun or exciting or whatever because they're not sharing this view, whatever it is. Self getting created and solidified out of preference, out of liking. This whole process of selfing out of Vedana is delineated in this next teaching uh, that I'll talk about, dependent arising or dependent origination, Paticca Samuppada. Incredibly um, brilliant insight of the Buddha's, original to him. These 12 links detailing how we go from ignorance to creating um, all of the conditions of mind and body, and then in response to experience this whole momentum that happens from grasping to clinging to um, becoming and self, and then on from that to solidifying as a birth and then necessarily a death. Vedana is in, at the heart of that teaching and particularly the heart of pointing to how we find freedom in that teaching, in that description. And it's considered such an important teaching that Sariputta said, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. So again, dependent origination at the heart of the Dhamma, Vedana at the heart of dependent origination. So very central. So it could give a whole talk, a whole weekend, a whole week. You know, you could spend a lifetime exploring dependent origination and the, the nuances and the subtleties and the depths of that. I'm giving you my um, Cliff's Note version tonight, my simplistic version. So, that, which is, there's ignorance, no beginning, no end to ignorance. We have a mind and a body shaped by ignorance and our previous experiences, so it's conditioned. That's the first five links, like that. Um, Then contact arises. Something happens at one of the six sense doors. In response to that, Vedana arises. It's, It's separate from, but arises with, right next to, it part It's always hard to get the language for this because it's not the contact, yet it arises with the contact. They they shape each other, really. Um, When the Vedana of that experience isn't noticed, the process that I've already talked about happens. When something's pleasant, we crave it. When something's unpleasant, we push away. In dependent origination, it's all called craving because aversion is just considered wanting not to have pushing away. It's just a different form, a flip side of craving, not wanting, not craving, pushing away. And it creates a sense of self. It goes on this whole um, momentum that gets created. From that, we take birth as a, in a particular identity, a p- particular being. Um, and what always happens with a birth is there's a death, old age, sickness, death, shorthand, longhand, for dukkha, for suffering. And this cycle can happen over many lifetimes, over three lifetimes traditionally in the teaching. It can happen in a moment. 
It can happen over an hour or a day or a retreat. There's many cycles of dependent origination happening. But the point or the power of it is from ignorance, contact, contact, vedna, craving, birth, what happens with birth, death. And if there's no wisdom, if the cycle isn't cut, hopefully at Vedna, but in any of the other aspects of the cycle, actually, it's possible. With every birth, it's inevitable that there's death. And you can read all these statistics about what's the main cause of death in, in Western cultures, you know, heart attack or stroke or cancer or whatever. The grim Buddhist humor is, what's the main cause of death? Birth. You know, you, you get born, you're going to die. It's just what happens. Um, and so the Buddha says this is happening over and over again. It certainly happens, as we know, in a lifetime. But it can happen moment to moment, too. We're creating these cells all the time in this kind of cyclical way. This is a description of samsara. This is a description of this realm. So, Vedna is considered to be a universal mental factor, which means it's arriving, arising in every mind moment. Um, and contact is also a universal mental factor, meaning if we're conscious, contact is happening, therefore Vedna is happening. What's important to recognize about Vedna is it's conditioned. Even though it arises with the object, our response of Vedna is conditioned by our previous experiences. So we need to explore what's happening here, really get close to and curious about it. Someone I was talking to today was exploring this and said, you know, really curious about it, saying, but I see a lot of pleasant, I see a lot of unpleasant, but I don't see any neutral. Everything immediately shades into pleasant or unpleasant. And that's actually quite true. The mind so wants to make uh, an opinion about something. It actually is rare for us to have this sense of true neutrality. But interesting to explore because it definitely is more, of an, uh, more there than we might think. And also the mind that steadies with equanimity, there is more neutral Vedana when the mind isn't as reactive. It's just a stronger experience that we can have. So sometimes everything can seem neutral. Certainly more things can be neutral as the mind moves into that kind of equanimity. And also to just explore. Sometimes we give the instruction of be with what's predominant, what's, what's really drawing your attention. And that very instruction encourages us to ignore what's actually more subtle in experience. So I actually encourage people to be with subtle experiences, to look at the, you know, just the touch of your shirt sleeve on your skin or the temperature in a room that you hadn't previously noticed as being too hot or too cold. What is it? To actually be a little curious about this neutral Vedana and explore it. And so the temperature of the room is a great example of the conditioned nature of Vedana. So we could probably 
really scientifically measure the temperature in this room, right? You could get one of those gadgets that measures the temperature and the humidity and I don't know what are the other things that affect temperature, but there's no wind chill or anything, but you know, maybe the fan was blowing, but we could measure it, right? It would be objective. And yet I look out here and especially this morning, it's not so much, well, now I see it a little bit. I see people in t-shirts and people's in shawls with hats on. So what's the right temperature? Is it too hot or too cold? You know, we have very different relationships to the same objective phenomena of the temperature of the room. It's conditioned. Our response of whether this temperature is pleasant just right, or pleasant because it's cool, or unpleasant because it's cool, or pleasant because it's warm, you know, it's a very subjective experience of something as objective as temperature. Guy used the example when he was talking about this, of this bell, that the tone itself, you could say, it's quite a pleasant tone, but it's our association with it, right, that's really pleasant, isn't it, mainly? But what about when you're having a really good sitting? Is it still pleasant? You know, when someone rings a bell and then you know there's going to be this cacophony of shuffling and squeaking and rustling. No, I'm just getting into my meditation. Or the same bell that sounds so nice this way. (laughs) Sorry about that. You are paying attention. That's good. Not so nice, really, but same bell. Different sound. I was trying to think of, you know, retreat experiences that you can relate to. So one I thought of, eggs and bagels for breakfast. Pleasant or unpleasant? A change from oatmeal, right? Anything is pleasant. So the first time you're like, great, not not oatmeal equals pleasant. But after a while, it's like boiled eggs again. Don't they know a different way to prepare eggs? Or just the whole cacophony, especially if you want your bagel more toasted, you know, of getting to the toaster and, you know, the little subtle elbowing that happens as who's first in line and whose bagel is coming out of the toaster and lining up for the jam and what kind of jam. It's exhausting, right? (laughs) I know people who deliberately don't go to breakfast on those days because they just find it so challenging to their equanimity. Something that was pleasant and might be pleasant one day, another day completely unpleasant. So again, it's a changeable thing. It's conditioned, dependent on how our history and our relationship to it in the moment. And then more complex Vedana. So Vedana can be you know, just simple response of, of pleasant, unpleasant with sounds, with taste, with sensations. But I recently read a book, I'm doing a lot of exploration of this theme, called Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. And it's her exploration of just realizing um, the amount of her delusion about the benefits, the unseen, unquestioned benefits, privileges of being white, being a white American woman. Um, and so it was really eye-opening for me because I sh- share, share many of her delusions, especially, you know, the, the, the sense, I'm not racist, I'm a good person, you know, blatant racism, you know, that's bad, that's wrong, I would never do that. But just looking at the more pervasive ways that racism and prejudice shape us and shape our institutions, shape the very way society functions, it can really be 
shocking, actually, certainly humbling. Um, you know, institutional racism, how even institutions with very good values, um, good intentions, create barriers to participation. Places like IMS, like Spirit Rock, through the ways they function that we think are just normal, the people that created them, actually create barriers to participation and to feeling included for all kinds of people from all different backgrounds, just by the way we do things. So we're really waking up to that and that delusion and trying to see that the way we always do things isn't necessarily the only way, the best way, the right way. We need to change. And that things that we can assume that are just unquestioningly good or fair or just may not necessarily be so, that other people may have very different experiences. One of these that Debbie Irving brings out is the GI Bill. For those of you uh, not American, even as an Australian, I had heard of this and always thought it was a great thing. The GI Bill um, gave to people who served in the military, especially after World War II, but I presume any war, access to benefits like housing and education seemed like a great thing. It was really the engine after World War II that brought a huge amount of prosperity to this country, created a middle class, an educated middle class, lots of well-paying jobs, was really seemed like a really one of those things, that was a really good idea, right? In her book, she explores and explains how for people of color, men and women of color who served in the military, those benefits were just not available or hardly available. They were sidelined, they were marginalized because they were people of color, didn't have access to college, access to the housing benefits, access to the neighborhoods. And this whole movement that created this strong and thriving middle class marginalized a whole section of society. I had no idea about that. She didn't either. She was so shocked when she read about that. But I just see for me, I mean, it's a more complex thing, but something that I previously, my Vedana of it was pleasant. GI Bill, good, right? Now it's like, oh, you know, this was actually a source of so much of the um, separation and sense of um, disenfranchisement that there is in this culture. So now I must say I haven't, you know, certainly mixed, if not at times a negative view of that thing that previously was so positive, so pleasant. So, from simple things to more complex experiences, tuning into the Vedana can help us to track what our habitual reactions might be and bring more mindfulness so we don't necessarily fall into the extremes of craving or aversion. And as I said, for dependent and this dependent origination teaching, this can happen on a momentary level. It can happen over a period of time, whether it's hours or days or weeks, or in this lifetime or over lifetimes. Just think of all of the senses of self you've created today. And if you look, you'll see this process, um, the sense of yourself as a mother or a partner or a daughter, just in your mind, in your way you're relating to experience, as a yogi, as a meditator, as a good meditator, as a bad meditator, as a, a slow meditator or a fast meditator or whatever it is. We're doing it all the time, creating this sense of self. 
out of contact with certain aspects of our experience. When we notice the Vedana, it doesn't have to solidify into craving, clinging sense of self. We can actually stay present and not have that spiral that solidifies through the sense of self out all of our views and opinions, what's right and wrong, the sense of self and other, these groups that I pointed to earlier, can notice it and not even go there, not have that sense of selfing. Now, traditionally it's said that the point to break the cycle of dependent arising is at this noticing of Vedana. But we can sometimes hear that and think like there's this one moment and if I miss that then it's all hopeless. You know, the cycle's going and, and it's lost, right? We're, we're into samsara. Not true. Because Vedana is um, a universal mental factor, meaning it's arising again and again. Anywhere we notice the Vedana of an experience clearly, even if it's been going on for some time, there's a possibility of shifting how we're relating to it. Noticing the Vedana brings us closer to the actual experience of what's happening and takes us a little bit out of our story about what is happening. So anywhere we notice. The power of mindfulness itself, as I said in my first talk, brings some wisdom with it. Brings with it this knowing whether it's conscious or not that craving and clinging leads to suffering. That solidifying into a sense of self leads to separation and therefore suffering. Just the power of the mindfulness. The power of the mindfulness to decrease unwholesome states of mind and increase wholesome ones just through its functioning decreases the tendency towards craving and clinging. So the very mindfulness itself has this powerful um, potential. Mindfulness, when it's strongly developed, we keep talking about continuity of mindfulness, has as one of its aspects being non-reactive, non-judgmental. So in that, again, doesn't push or pull, push towards pleasant, pull away from unpleasant. It has a steadiness to it. So mindfulness and this noticing, bringing us closer to experience, actually is what allows us to break the chain, the sequence, the links of dependent origination. So that's really important to notice and actually probably the most helpful or common way that we'll work with Vedna is just through the mindfulness of it. But there's a very subtle but important other aspect of this as a practice. And if this doesn't make sense to you, no need to linger on it. But the, the mind or the awareness that's knowing the Vedna of a moment is not pleasant or unpleasant. It's neutral. The knowing of the Vedna itself that clarity isn't yet pushed or pulled into the liking or disliking. And if we can tune into that, there's again that possibility of unsticking or not getting on that slide, the momentum. Nyanaponikatera, um, he was a German monk who ordained in Sri Lanka, like his writings very much, has a whole um, 
paper on feeling tone. And he says, feeling by itself in its primary state is quite neutral when it registers the impact of an object as pleasant, unpleasant, or indifferent. This is subtle, but sometimes you can see that, that the, oh, the knowing, oh, this is pleasant, is actually neutral. There's equanimity, clarity in that knowing. Ajahn Amaro, where he puts it, is feeling is innocent. It's not yet pulled into the liking or the disliking, the craving or the aversion. Again, this is subtle, but as the mindfulness gets more continuous, can perhaps start to know. So the mindfulness of the Vedan, of the feeling tone, so important. If this registering, recognizing of it can break the chain. But unfortunately, this is not our normal or habitual level of mindfulness, right? Delusion is usually running the show, the force of habits, this momentum that's there. We see something like the pleasant or unpleasant immediately. It's just like like striking the bell. As soon as I strike the bell, a sound arises. As soon as there's something pleasant, we like or don't like it. So the next teaching, uh, important teaching, is the one on the dart. And it's in the Vedana Samyutta, um, where the Buddha is talking about the uninstructed worldling. And I'm afraid to tell you that's us, the uninstructed worldling, those that are still struggling in samsara. And the teaching is, when an uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two darts. So when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. So what that is saying there is there's the initial impact, some kind of unpleasant feeling. That in and of itself is a form of suffering. It's unpleasant. We add to that, and the phrase, sorrow, grieves and laments, weeps, beating his breast. Why is this happening? No, not me. It shouldn't be happening. It's not fair. It's not just. It's not right. Why not? Why now? Why, you know, why me? This is the second arrow. But then it goes on to say, being contacted by that painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. When he harbors aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling lies behind this. Being contacted by painful feeling, he seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. And so this is our second response. We don't like the painful feeling. What do we do? We rush around looking for a pleasant one to avoid feeling, to sublimate, to push away the painful feeling. This is our tendency. How often do you see yourself doing something like that? 
I don't like this game, I'm out of here. I, you know, whether we do that mentally or physically, painful feeling, go to something else, avoid it, um, go get a cup of tea. You know, there's not much to do here, I admit, but it's amazing what we can find <laughs> to distract ourselves from what's difficult. You know, we can spend a whole day here arranging things so they're pleasant, right? So that we don't push against those edges. We don't sit too long. Just do a little bit of walking because after that it gets boring or, you know, cup of tea at a certain time or the nap time or whatever it is so that we're just really arranging our experiences around the pleasant. The whole of society Basically, it functions on that level. Certainly the whole of the advertising media, the world of media, it's all about tantalizing us with what's pleasant and the promise of getting that, bringing us happiness. Look and see how much we get driven by that, whether it's on a gross level or a really subtle level. And to see, to understand that the point of our practice here isn't to arrange our day to be pleasant, It's to arrange it so our mindfulness gets supported and cultivated. This is what our practice is for. So again, you know, we're not not saying this to judge ourselves, to make this what our tendencies of mind are bad, excuse me, bad or wrong. This is just a habitual tendency of mind, a very human tendency to either add to the painful feeling with the the beating and the wailing and the why me and the why now and it shouldn't be this way and it's not fair and the victimhood and the the aggression around it or supplanting it, trying to avoid it by just finding the next hit, the next pleasant thing. The practice is, can we just be with that feeling as it is, even if it's unpleasant, even if it's not something that we um, want? And to not chase after, have our life and our practice be oriented around what's pleasant, pleasant, and not to add to the initial pain with the second arrow of the complaining and the correct, uh, the, the um, kvetching, as some people might say. Because this second arrow, that's actually a suffering we can do something about. The initial arrow... Whatever that is, the pain that comes of of grief, of loss, of physical injury, health, emotional suffering, you know, that will happen. We have a mind and a body. There will be that kind of suffering. But as Sylvia Borstein says, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. And what she's pointing to is the, the dukkha of the first kind of suffering. Have a mind and a body. There will be those impacts that are unpleasant but we don't need to add to them by all of the story that we tell around them. As Andrea said in her talk in Investigation, our practice isn't to find out or ask, why is this happening? Why, why, it, you know, why, why isn't it something happening? But just to stay with what is happening. Stay in the moment. Stay with the mindfulness. So it's all about bringing mindfulness to this quality of Vedana, of feeling tone. And hopefully you're getting a sense of how powerful it can be as a doorway to exploring Dhamma and freedom and not freedom. And as I said, you might decide to do it for a period of time, a few moments, a whole sitting or a walking um, can be really helpful. 
But I think particularly helpful nearly all the time is when you're having some kind of strong experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. If that mindfulness bell of what's the Vedana can ring, it's just such a, there's such a possibility of freedom. I can remember being on one three-month retreat here some time ago when things were much more austere. This is the new and improved IMS. I don't know how much you know, you know, the meditation hall, these new buildings, and now the dining room. So it was, you know, pretty simple here. And the food was also a little on the austere side. It was good, adequate, but the food is much better now, I have to say. But anyway, on one of these three-month retreats, um, didn't have many desserts. And one day there was, someone gave uh, ice cream dana, you know, for their birthday or something. They paid for everyone to have ice cream. And I can just remember that. My, my eyes just opened wide at the very idea of ice cream. And I could go into a whole elaboration of all of the mind moments around, you know, ice cream. But the main thing I want to point to is finally getting to have, because you have to eat your dinner first, right? You have to eat your lunch before you get to the ice cream. Some people didn't, I noticed that, but anyway. (laughs) The bowl of ice cream in that first bite, oh, and I remember so clearly thinking, that's why I like it. It's so pleasant. And it was just that hit out of, you know, this sort of austere environment, this luxuriating in it, rich and creamy and sweet and cold and all of these. But I saw that, that's why I like it, it's pleasant. So I can't say I was completely mindful, I was lost a little bit, but those moments were there, oh, this is pleasant. Something shifts when we can know that about experience. So we start to explore this whole world of Vedana. Some people think, or we can get confused by this, by thinking, you know, the Vedana is in the object. You know, it's in the knee pain, or it's in the ice cream. Vedna is a mental factor. We know it through the mind. So it's not in the body. It's not in the ice cream. It's in our response to it. So it's not in any particular, you know, so you don't have to go looking for Vedna, but we notice it arising at the sense door, wherever that contact is happening. It's more like the valence of an atom. It ha- the contact has this quality, has this uh, is this type of sensation associated with it. Um, and it's important to also include noticing the Vedna of mental states, of moods and emotions. They also have a Vedna associated with them. And noticing that can really help us unhook from being lost in something, in a pleasant fantasy, a sexual fantasy, Notice the Vedna of it, the Vedna of the pleasant sensations. Um, when something is really difficult and challenging, sometimes for people working with the judging mind to really feel the unpleasantness of that can help unhook us. So it can be very helpful to recognize that. To play with exploring the neutral Vedna um, and to see how quickly something you might land on first might seem neutral, and immediately we like or don't like it. It it shades so quickly. To explore when you're having an experience that you label as unpleasant, something like not much happening. And our immediate response is, right, this is boring, not much happening, so therefore unpleasant. But actually, 
sometimes with a clear seeing, staying a little more closely, what that experience might be is actually calm or equanimity, which is pleasant. So again, the conditioned nature of Vedana, the impermanent nature of Vedana, that's something that we first took to be you know, a pain in the body, unpleasant. We get curious about it and it goes from being pain to being just strong sensation. Sometimes going to, from strong sensation to just sensation. Sometimes to disappearing, turning neutral, mind not engaged anymore. So we track this. The pleasure of a bite of food, something you were looking forward to, those cheese scones today. You know, they looked good, just the idea of them, kind of cheesy and crisp and soft and buttery. You take that first bite, I think Kamala did this too, you know, it's like, what does that, it's pleasant, right? How long does the pleasantness last? Really track that. Quickly a gluey mess, right? Neutral, and what do we do? We swallow it and we go for the next hit. Track what happens there. There's so many opportunities to reflect that it's what we're experiencing, the Vedana of it, all other aspects too, and not the truth in the sense of the absolute truth of the way things are. These are conditioned responses to experience that Other people, just like the temperature in the hall, are having a very different experience. It helps us unstick a little bit from our wanting to say, this is the way things are. You know, I like this, I don't like that, because of this is the way things are. You know, this thing is unlikable, therefore I don't like it. To just unhook a little bit and not hold it so tightly. As the mindfulness gets more continuous, we're there for the arising of contact. If we're there for the arising of contact at all the different moments, mind moments, we can be there for the noticing of the Vedana. Again, don't have to do it all the time, but particularly if something is catching your attention, is is having a strong impact. When we notice the Vedana, see what happens. Really notice what I notice happens when there's a strong experience, say a knee pain, and I, you know, I'm noticing it like sensation, burning, pulling, tingling, whatever, but have that mind moment, oh, this is unpleasant. Something in the mind releases a little. It's like, oh, right, that's why I don't like it. Pleasant, that's why I like the ice cream. Unpleasant, that's why I'm not liking this. There's something about deepening into the truth of that experience. Again, that alignment that I spoke about right at the beginning, there's not so much of a hook. The mind releases or relaxes a little and helps us meet that experience more clearly. So notice if that happens. Notice if that's true for you. And then that subtle pointing that the very noticing of the Veda, that mind moment that clearly recognizes or this is pleasant, or this is unpleasant, is neutral, has some balance in it, has some clarity, some equanimity in it. We can also cultivate unworldly pleasant feelings. And this is what we're doing here a lot. We're not indulging the senses a lot. We're not indulging the pleasant worldly feelings of gratification at the sense doors. There's a lot of renunciation here. 
see if you can find any degree of delight in that, of the simplicity of knowing you have everything you need to be warm, dry, and fed, and your little room with the meals, you know, they're great meals here, um, but they're just enough to keep the body, you don't get to choose, apart from choosing what's offered, what's put out. This simplicity, this renunciation here, there can be times in practice where we just really delight in that, of having few wishes. As a Metta Sutta says, frugal in their ways, not proud and demanding in nature. There can be a delight in that. Delight in the mind as it gets more steady, more connected, more concentrated. So many of you are reporting that, and I'm not you know, talking about deep absorptions, but just more present, more here. As the Buddha said, this was the doorway for his awakening. He said, why should I be afraid of those wholesome pleasures of the deepened mind, the concentrated mind? These pleasures are blameless. And as he decided not to be afraid of them, led into deep states of absorption, and then he turned the mind to insight and to freeing. Analeo, in his great book, Satipatthana, said that after his awakening, the Buddha declared himself to be one who lived in happiness. This statement clearly shows that, unlike some of his ascetic contemporaries, the Buddha was no longer afraid of pleasant feelings. As he pointed out, it was precisely the successful eradication of all mental unwholesomeness that caused his happiness and delight. In a similar vein, the verses composed by awakened monks and nuns often extol the happiness of freedom gained through the successful practice of the path. The presence of delight and non-sensual joy among the awakened disciples of the Buddha often found its expression in poetic descriptions of natural beauty. Indeed, the early Buddhist monks delighted in their way of life, as testified by a visiting king who described them as smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful and plainly delighting, living at ease and unruffled. Great description of a sangha, of a community. This description falls part of a comparison made by the king between the followers of the Buddha and other ascetics whose demeanor was comparatively gloomy. To him, the degree of joy exhibited by the Buddha's disciples corroborated the appropriateness of the Buddha's teaching. So it's not about not joy, not pleasant feelings, not beauty, but this kind of beauty, joy, that actually is onward leading, cultivating the other paramis, the other brahma-viharas, generosity, kindness, metta, and certainly equanimity, not the equanimity of not feeling, but this steadiness of mind that um, allows us to be present without being so pushed and pulled by experience. And importantly and lastly, the selfless nature of this whole process, the conditioned selfless nature. Feelings are just feelings. Condition, impermanent. Don't need to create them create a self out of them to make them me or mine. Feelings are not solid. Feelings are not permanent. So I'll finish with the words of the Buddha. For some people, contact 
The point where sense plus object meet is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. It's referring to dependent origination. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. Let's just let the words settle into silence. Again, thank you for your attention. About 30 minutes for walking before you can come back for the unworldly, pleasant feeling of chanting the Karaniya Metta Sutta together. Definitely a wholesome pleasure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.